0: Chapter Four Parts One to Four of The Passionate Friends by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. Chapter the Fourth The Marriage of the Lady Mary Christian. One For three or four days I could get no word with Mary. I could not now come and go as I had been able to do in the days when we were still the children. I could not work, I could not rest. I prowled as near as I could to Burnmore House, hoping for some glimpse of her, waiting for the moment when I could decently present myself again at the house. When at last I called, Justin had gone, and things had some flavor of the ancient time. Lady Ladislaw received me with an airy intimacy, all the careful responsibility of her luncheon-party manner thrown aside. "'And how goes Cambridge?' she sang, sailing through the great saloon towards me, and I thought that for the occasion Cambridge instead of Oxford would serve sufficiently well. "'You'll find them all at tennis,' said Lady Ladislaw, and waved me on to the gardens. There I found all four of them, and had to wait until their set was finished.' Mary, I said at the first chance, are we never to talk again? It's all different, she said. I am dying to talk to you, as we used to talk. And I, Stevenage, but, you see? Next time I come, I said, I shall bring you a letter. There is so much. No, she said, can't you get up in the morning? Very early, five or six. No one is up until ever so late. I'd stay up all night. Serve, said Maxton, who was playing the two of us, and had stopped, I think, to tighten his shoe. Things conspired against any more intimacy for a time. But we got our moment on the way to tea. She glanced back at Philip, who was loosening the net, and then forward to estimate the distance of Maxton and Guy. They're all three going, she said, after Tuesday, then before six. Wednesday? Yes. Suppose after all, she threw out, I can't come. Fortunes of war. If I can't come one morning, I may come another. She spoke hastily, and I perceived that Guy and Maxton had turned, and were waiting for us. You know the old ice-house? towards the gardens? Yes, on the further side. Don't come by the road, come across by the end of the mirror. Lie in the bracken until you see me coming. I've not played tennis a dozen times this year, not half a dozen. This last was for the boys. You've played twenty times at least since you've been here, said Guy, with the simple bluntness of a brother. I'm certain. Two. To this day, a dewy morning in late August, brings back the thought of Mary, and those stolen meetings. I have the minutest recollection of the misty bloom upon the turf, and the ragged, filmy carpet of gossamer on either hand, of the warm wetness of every little blade and blossom, and of the little scraps and seeds of grass upon my soaking and discoloured boots. Our footsteps were dark green upon the dew-grey grass. And I feel the same hungry freshness again, At the thought of those stolen meetings. Presently came the sunrise, blinding, warming, Dew dispelling arrows of gold smiting through the tree-stems, A flood of light foaming over the bracken, And gilding the undersides of the branches. Everything is different and distinctive in those opening hours everything has a different value from what it has by day. All the little things upon the ground, fallen branches, tussocks, woodpiles, have a peculiar intensity and importance, seem magnified, because of the length of their shadows in the slanting rays, and all the great trees seem lifted above the light and merged with the sky. And at last a cool gray outline against the blaze, and with a glancing iridescent halo about her comes mary flitting adventurous friendly wonderful Oh, stevenage she cries to see you again we each hold out both our hands and clasp and hesitate and rather shyly kiss come she says we can talk for an hour it's still not six and there is a fallen branch where we can sit, and put our feet out of the wet. Oh, it's so good to be out of things again, clean out of things, with you. Look, there is a stag watching us. You're glad to be with me? I ask, jealous of the very sunrise. I am always glad, she says, to be with you. Why don't we always get up at dawn, Stevenage, every day of our lives? We go, rustling through the grass, to the prostrate timber she has chosen. I can remember even the thin bracelet on the wrist of the hand that lifted her skirt. I help her to clamber into a comfortable fork, from which her feet can swing. Such fragments as this are as bright as undimmed, as if we had met this morning. But then comes our conversation, and that I find vague and irregularly obliterated. But I think I must have urged her to say she loved me, and beat about the bush of that declaration, too fearful to put my heart's wish to the issue, that she would promise to wait three years for me, until I could prove it was not madness for her to marry me, I have been thinking of it all night, and every night since I have been here," I said. Somehow I will do something. In some way I will get hold of things, believe me, with all my strength." I was standing between the forking boughs, and she was looking down upon me. Stephen, dear,' she said, dear, dear boy. I have never wanted to kiss you so much in all my life. Dear, come close to me. She bent her fresh young face down to mine. Her fingers were in my hair. My knight, she whispered, close to me. My beautiful young knight. I whispered back and touched her dew fresh lips. And tell me, what would you do to conquer the world for me? she asked. I cannot remember now a word of all the vague threatenings against the sundering universe with which I replied. Her hand was on my shoulder as she listened. But I do know that even on this first morning she left me with a sense of beautiful unreality, of having dipped for some precious moments into heroic gossamer, all my world subjugation seemed already as evanescent as the morning haze and the vanishing dews, as I stood, a little hidden in the shadows of the killing wood, and ready to plunge back at the first hint of an observer, and watched her slender whiteness flit circumspectly towards the house. Three. Our next three or four meetings are not so clearly defined. We did not meet every morning for fear that her early rising should seem too punctual to be no more than a chance impulse nor did we go to the same place but there stands out very clearly a conversation in a different mood we had met at the sham ruins at the far end of the great shrubbery a huge shattered corinthian portico of rather damaged stucco giving wide views of the hills toward Alfredsham between its three erect pillars, and affording a dry seat upon its fallen ones. It was an overcast morning, I remember, probably the hour was earlier. A kind of twilight clearness made the world seem strange, and the bushes and trees between us and the house very heavy and still and dark. And we were at cross-purpose, for now it was becoming clear to me, that Mary did not mean to marry me, that she dreaded making any promise to me for the future, that all the heroic common cause I wanted with her was quite alien to her dreams. "'But, Mary,' I said, looking at her colourless, delicate face, "'don't you love me? Don't you want me?' "'You know I love you, Stevenage,' she said. "'You know!' but if two people love one another they want to be always together they want to belong to each other she looked at me with her face very intent upon her meaning stevenage she said after one of those steadfast pauses of hers i want to belong to myself naturally i said with an air of disposing of an argument and then paused Why should one have to tie oneself always to one other human being? she asked. Why must it be like that? I do not remember how I tried to meet this extraordinary idea. One loves, I may have said. The subtle scepticisms of her mind went altogether beyond my habits of thinking. It had never occurred to me that there was any other way of living except in these voluntary and involuntary mutual servitudes in which men and women live and die if you love me i urged if you love me i want nothing better in all my life but to love and serve and keep you and make you happy she surveyed me and weighed my words against her own i love meeting you she said I love your going, because it means that afterwards you will come again. I love this, this slipping out to you. But up there, there is a room in the house that is my place, me, my own. Nobody follows me there. I want to go on living, Stevenage, just as I am living now. I don't want to become someone's certain possession, to be just usual and familiar to anyone. No, not even to you. But if you love, I cried, to you least of all, don't you see, I want to be wonderful to you, Stephenage, more than to any one, I want, I want always to make your heart beat faster, I want always to be coming to you with my own heart beating faster, always and always I want it to be like that, just as it has been on these mornings, it has been beautiful, altogether beautiful.' "'Yes,' I said, rather helplessly, and struggled with great issues I had never faced before. "'It isn't,' I said, "'how people live.' "'It is how I want to live,' said Mary. "'It isn't the way life goes.' "'I want it to be. Why shouldn't it be?' Why, at any rate, shouldn't it be for me? Four. I made some desperate schemes to grow suddenly rich and powerful, and I learnt for the first time my true economic value. Already my father and I had been discussing my prospects in life, and he had been finding me vague and difficult. I was full of large political intentions, That so far I had made no definite plans for a living that would render my political ambitions possible. It was becoming apparent to me that for a poor man in England the only possible route to political distinction is the bar, and I was doing my best to reconcile myself to the years of waiting and practice that would have to precede my political debut. My father disliked the law and I do not think it reconciled him to the idea of my being a barrister, that afterwards I hoped to become a politician. "'It isn't in our temperament, Stephen,' he said. "'It's a pushing, bullying, cramming base-life. I don't see you succeeding there, and I don't see myself rejoicing even if you do succeed. You have to shout, and Strattons don't shout. You have to be smart and tricky, and there's never been a smart and tricky Stratton yet.' You have to snatch opportunities and get the better of the people, and misrepresent the realities of every case you touch. You're a paid misrepresenter. They say you'll get a fellowship, Stephen. Why not stay up, and do some thinking for a year or so? There'll be enough to keep you. Write a little." The bar, I said, is only a means to an end. If you succeed... If I succeed, One has to take the chances of life everywhere. And what is the end? Constructive statesmanship. Not in that way, said my father, pouring himself a second glass of port, and turning over my high-sounding phrase with a faint hint of distaste. Constructive statesmanship. No, once a barrister, always a barrister. You'll only be a party politician. Vulgar men vulgar if you succeed that is he criticised me but he did not oppose me and already in the beginning of the summer we had settled that i should be called to the bar now suddenly i wanted to go back upon all these determinations i began to demand in the intellectual slang of the time more actuality and to amaze my father with talk about empire-makers and the greatness of lord strathcona and cecil rhodes why i asked shouldn't i travel for a year in search of opportunity at oxford i had made acquaintance with a son of pramley's the big mexican and borneo man and to him i wrote apropos of a half-forgotten midnight talk in the rooms of some common friend he wrote back with the suggestion that i should go and talk to his father and i tore myself away from mary and went up to see that great exploiter of undeveloped possibilities and have one of the most illuminating and humiliating conversations in the world he was i remember a little pale-complexioned slow-speaking man with a humorous blue eye a faint just perceptible northern accent and a trick of keeping silent for a moment after you had finished speaking and he talked to me as one might talk to a child of eight, who wanted to know how one could become a commander-in-chief. His son had evidently emphasized my union reputation, and he would have been quite willing, I perceived, to give me employment, if I had displayed the slightest intelligence or ability in any utilizable direction. But quite dreadfully he sounded my equipment with me, and showed me the emptiness of my stores." You want some way that gives you a chance of growing rich rapidly, he said. Aye, it's not a bad idea. But there's others, you know, have tried that game before ye. You don't want riches just for riches, but for an end. Aye, aye, it's the spending attracts ye. You'd not have me think you'd the sin of avarice. I'm clear on that about ye. Well, he explained, it's all one of three things we do, you know. Prospecting, and forestalling, and just stealing and the only respectable way is prospecting you'd prefer the respectable way i suppose i knew you would well let's see what chances you have and he began to probe my practical knowledge it was like an unfit man stripping for a medical inspection did i know anything of oil of rubber of sugar of substances generally had i studied mineralogy or geology Had I any ideas of industrial processes, of technical chemistry, of rare minerals, of labor problems and the handling of alien labor, of the economics of railway management, or of camping out in dry, thinly populated countries? Or again, could I maybe speak Spanish, or Italian, or Russian? The little dons who career about Oxford a foot and a wheel, wearing old gowns and mortar-boards, giggling over Spooner's latest, and being tremendous characters in the intervals of concocting the ruling-class mind, had turned my mind away from such matters altogether. I had left that sort of thing to Germans, and East End Jews, and young men from the upper-grade board-schools of Sheffield and Birmingham. I was made to realize appalling wildernesses of ignorance. "'You see,' said old Pramley, you don't seem to know anything whatever. It's a difficulty. It'll stand in your way a little now, though no doubt you'd be quick at the uptake. After all the education they've given ye. But it stands in your way, if ye think of setting out to do something large and effective just immediately." Moreover, it came out, I forget now how, that I hadn't clearly grasped the difference, between cumulative and non-cumulative preference shares i remember too how i dined alone that evening in a mood between frantic exasperation and utter abasement in the window of the mediated universities club of which i was a junior member under the undergraduate rule and i lay awake all night in one of the austere club bedrooms saying to old Pramley a number of extremely able and penetrating things that had unhappily not occurred to me during the progress of our interview. I didn't go back to Burnmore for several days. I had set my heart on achieving something, on returning with some earnest of the great attack I was to make upon the separating great world between myself and Mary. I am far enough off now from that angry and passionate youngster to smile at the thought that my subjugation of things in general, and high finance in particular, took at last the form of proposing to go into the office of Bean, Medhurst, Stockton, and Schnadhorst upon half-commissioned terms. I was awaiting my father's reply to the startling new suggestion, when I got a telegram from Mary. We are going to Scotland unexpectedly. Come down and see me." I went home instantly, and told my father I had come to talk things over with him. A note from Mary lay upon the hall table as I came in and encountered my father. "'I thought it better to come down to you,' I said, with my glance roving to find that, and then I met his eye. It wasn't altogether an unkindly eye but I winced dishonestly. "'Talking is better for all sorts of things,' said my father, and wanted to know if the weather had been as hot in London as it had been in Burnmore. Mary's note was in pencil, scribbled hastily. I was to wait after eleven that night, near the great rose-bushes behind the pavilion. Long before eleven I was there.' On a seat in a thick shadow, looking across great lakes of moonlight, towards the phantom statuary of the Italianate garden, and the dark laurels that partly masked the house. I waited nearly an hour, an hour of stillness, and small creepings and cheepings, and goings to and fro among the branches. In the bushes near by me, a little green glowworm shared my vigil. And then, Wrapped about in a dark velvet cloak, still in her white dinner dress, with shining, gleaming, glancing stones about her dear throat, warm and wonderful and glowing and daring, Mary came flitting out of the shadows to me. "'My dear,' she whispered, panting and withdrawing a little from our first passionate embrace, "'Oh, my dear, how did I come?' "'Twice before, when I was a girl, I got out this way. "'By the corner of the conservatory and down the laundry wall. "'You can't see from here, but it's easy, easy. "'There's a tree that helps. "'And now I have come that way to you, you. "'Oh, love me, my Stephen, love me, dear. "'Love me as if we were never to love again. "'Am I beautiful, my dear? "'Am I beautiful in the moonlight? "'Tell me.' perhaps this is the night of our lives dear perhaps never again will you and i be happy but the wonder dear the beauty isn't it still it's as if nothing really stood solid and dry as if everything floated everyone in all the world has gone to sleep tonight and left the world to us come come this way and peep at the house there stoop under the branches. See, not a light is left, and all its blinds are drawn, and its eyes shut. One window is open, my little window, Stephen, but that is the shadow where that creeper makes everything black. Along here, a little further, is night-stock. Now, now, sniff, Stephen, sniff, the scent of it. It lies, like a bank of scented air. And Stephen, there, look! a star a star without a sound falling out of the blue it's gone there was her dear face close to mine soft under the soft moonlight and the breath of her sweet speech mingled with the scent of the night stalk. that was indeed the most beautiful night of my life a night of moonlight and cool fragrance and adventurous excitement. We were transported out of this old world of dusty limitations. It was as if, for those hours, the curse of man was lifted from our lives. No one discovered us, no evil thing came near us. For a long time we lay close in one another's arms upon a bank of time. Our heads were close together, Her eyelashes swept my cheek. We spoke rarely, and in soft whispers, and our hearts were beating, beating. We were as solemn as great mountains, and as innocent as sleeping children. Our kisses were kisses of moonlight. And it seemed to me that nothing that had ever happened, or could happen afterwards, mattered against that happiness. It was nearly three when at last I came back into my father's garden. No one had missed me from my room, and the house was all asleep, but I could not get in, because I had closed a latch behind me. And so I stayed in the little arbor until day, watching the daybreak upon long beaches of pale cloud over the hills towards Alfredsham. I slept at last with my head upon my arms, upon the stone table, Until the noise of shooting bolts and doors being unlocked roused me to watch my chance, and slip back again into the house, and up the shuttered, darkened staircase to my tranquil, undisturbed bedroom. End of chapter 4, parts 1 to 4.